Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. In some of my songs, I have casually mentioned the fact that I like to drink beer. This little song is more to the point. Roll out the barrel and lend me your ears. I like beer. It makes me a jolly good fellow. I like beer. It helps me unwind and sometimes it makes me feel mellow. Welcome to Whiskey Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Here we are at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and we're celebrating a special day. It's Tuesday, November 15th, also known as King's Day in Belgium. Later on in the show, we'll make a special tribute to our friends at Van Bergen de Wolf, who are celebrating 30 years of bringing great Belgian beers to beer lovers here in the United States. We'll be joining in the coast-to-coast, toast with toast, here in the studio, and we hope you'll join us in raising a glass or two. Beer Sessions Radio is sponsored by GreatBrewers.com. GreatBrewers.com brings the American beer community together on GreatBrewers.com. It's all about the beers, and we're supported by the people at the Good Beer Seal. Check out GoodBeerSeal.com, 34 New York City Good Beer Bars. All right, here we are, Beer Sessions Radio. Tonight there's a special Twitter thing going on, hashtag C2CT. Hashtag C2CT or at Belgian Experts. It's pretty cool. <laughs> well, Jen Swartman, my special co-host hey. tonight. How are you, Jen? I'm great. I'm so excited about the big toast and celebrating well, Van Bergen de Wolf. We have these little c- c- cool little coasters from Van Bergen de Wolf, and it's all their beers on the back. Yeah. Uh, have you tried all the, all the Van Bergen de Wolf beers? I can't say I've had every single one of them, or I remember having every single one of them. But, um, yeah, there are a few favorites on there for me. Which one do you like I, the most? I um, Well, of course I love Saison DuPont, but I also love uh, DuPont's what is it, Foray, Foret, Um which is organic and it's funkier. And then I absolutely love the Lambrucha, which is something that um, Don and Wendy actually created. That's 50% Belgian Lambic and 50% uh, organic kombucha tea. So it's just like the most refreshing thing to drink, especially in the heat of summer. I drank it all summer. <laughs> you know what's cool? The, one of the coolest things about... Wendy Littlefield and Don Feinberg is that 30 years ago they went to Belgium when nobody was interested in beer and hardly anybody and they was were interested kids. in Belgian beer. They had just graduated and from college. And it shows you what young people can do. And, yeah. and uh, a style of beer called Saison, which we know as Saison de Pont, was they were apparently two months away from discontinuing that brand. Wow. And without Wendy and Don, we wouldn't know Saison de Pont. And on that note, I'm going to introduce our listeners to uh, two other young people who are really making a difference in the world of beer, just like Wendy and Don 30 years ago. It's uh, Erica O'Shea and Stephen Villan from Brooklyn Brew Shop. How are you guys? Welcome. Doing all right. Thanks for having us. Yeah, so um, you guys just had a book come out, and um, tell us a little bit about it, because it's pretty cool. It's um, Brooklyn Brew Shop's beer-making book, 52 Seasonal Recipes for Small Batches. Uh, We do... We created a one-gallon apartment-friendly beer brewing kit, which um, actually ended up quite popular um, among people with real kitchens as well, and not just apartment kitchens. And so we created a book with uh, 52 of our favorite recipes. We actually brought 
a lobster saison. So, so excited about this beer. <laughs> to try on air. Um, but yeah, it, it's really exciting. We divided it up into season because we brew by season and it has some of our favorite mixes um, like our grapefruit honey ale and our peanut butter porter that exist as kits, but also beers that we've never um, come yeah. out with. The lobster saison, I don't think anybody would personally buy as a first-time brewer, but it's definitely something you want to you know, make. You guys make it easy. We've had you on the show a few times, and, and, and I've hung out with you. You guys make it easy. I mean, it's, It seems to me you started out doing small batches. That was like your, your goal, but... These recipes, these amazing like flavored recipes, playing with kitchen like you know food ingredients, are so exciting for people. That I mean, this book is full of the innovations that you've created. It's fantastic. Yeah, we definitely wanted to simplify the whole process without dumbing it down, so we oh, can make these it are easy. not simple recipes. <laughs> I mean, they may be simple to make, but as far as ingredients and like innovative flavors and playing with what beer, what people think beer is mm-hmm. and what it can be. You guys are completely on the cutting edge. Yeah, I mean, when we think of simplifying, we just think of... Like, you basically have all the things that you need to make beer in your home already. Except uh, a lobster shell, maybe. <laughs> well, that's why you but have a lobster But then you get to go cookout. eat a lobster and bring the shell home. <laughs> what Great. beer is this? <clears throat> the lobster saison. So it's a, uh, it's a really light, dry saison where we actually throw lobster shells in uh, while we're brewing. And what does that do? You know, oyster shells go and oyster stout. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what do same, lobster shells do for lobsters? Same season? thing. So it gives it a nice like seaweed, like sea brininess. Um, do you taste that? I chip? don't actually. You know, the thing is, I was talking to you guys um, before, and I absolutely love oyster stout. And what always uh, like you know is perplexing to me is you expect it to be briny and have some sort sort of salty um, oceanic characteristic, and instead it always seems to just sort of make it creamy and even and flowing complex but it doesn't necessarily give it like a salty you know like oceanic thing and i don't necessarily taste brine in this either yeah it's more like a little minerality in the Mm -hmm. back um we actually i wanted to brew with lobster for years and kept debating what style to pair it with and we're like do we want like a somehow a buttery beer and buttery really isn't what you want to come out in a beer and you're like but lobster pairs so well with butter and then you're like well what do I want to drink when I'm eating lobster and you want something generally dry and light and refreshing and saisons are one of our favorite styles we really love Belgian beers and brew a lot of Belgian beers and so we went with that style for its dryness and the lobster really just has if we don't tell you it's lobster. You don't necessarily know. Exactly. And then people are like, oh, okay. Like, I can see it. But it's more like a kind of I think the mineral mineral, mineral uh, quality is a better way to describe. We have, we have another does. beer expert. we got Ben Wood, uh, who reps a lot of beers in New York City. What's up, Jimmy? How are you? Hey, Ben. Um, what do you think of this beer? Uh, it's really tasty. <clears throat> I definitely... Uh, it's got that like nice sort of spicy, funky note to it. And I, can, I get the lobster going on in it. I mean, it's, it's really mild, but it's... Super you wouldn't tasty. know it had lobster. Yeah, in definitely, it. I definitely mean, you not. would you would taste that and go, "That is a beautiful saison," mm-hmm. which Absolutely. it is. It's just gorgeous in its own right. I'm sure it would be great even if it didn't have lobster shells in it. But <laughs> but it um, also has white peppercorns, bay leaves, yeah, I love and that. Uh, long peppers too. Yeah, so just, and the pepper. Just to give it a little hint. And, yeah. So, Stephen, I know you've um, you've made some really cool recipes, and I've tried a lot of your beers. So, do you think you take more of like a cooking approach to brewing than other other people in this field? 
we, I mean, I don't know. Cooking approach, we definitely try to make it easy for people who are into food and into cooking. I mean, like when we made the book, we we wanted to come up with like a beer book that felt like a cookbook. So if you ever were used to cooking and used to using cookbooks, you could pick this up and just kind of figure out how to make beer. So when we're brewing, we usually think of different flavor combinations in food that we normally like, and then we just walk around, you know, the green market and see what there is and uh, what's in season. Did you guys cook a lot before? I mean, were you already innovative in the kitchen? I cooked a lot. Uh Um, When when we first started dating, Stephen didn't actually have much interest in (laughs) food or spending money on food, and that was something that I just didn't understand because... The best thing about growing up with my family was that they threw really fantastic dinner parties and with all sorts of different kinds of food. And I actually didn't like beer when I met Stephen, um, but really liked cooking and really liked hobbies. And he liked beer. And so we kind of got into brewing as a joint venture. And he now loves food and loves cooking. And I love beer and I love brewing. So it was a win-win. She's more of a spontaneous cooker. I like to... Kind of so you were quantifying everything she was doing and no. kind of coming up with a... <laughs> you were writing it down, taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody needed to take yeah. notes. I was probably drinking. But <laughs> they are cool, but they're a cool couple, aren't they? No, Jenny? it's a match made in heaven. <laughs> Obviously. I mean, no, really, what they've created is so amazing. And now it's reaching... You know, it started out at Brooklyn Flea, which is, you know, well-known, you know, for artisans to put their product out there. But now you're coast-to-coast, and you've been in Williams-Sonoma, and now you just told me that you're you're going to be at Urban Outfitters. So that means, like, national, you know, people are going to get to have Brooklyn Brew Shop's innovation on this whole process of home brewing anywhere in the country. International, too. Um, oh, really? We're really big in Norway. So uh, Stephen, Stephen is Norwegian, and we were in a really popular Norway paper and now are distributed there, which is really unbelievable and very cool. And we get lots of messages in Norwegian that I use Google Translate to figure out what actually they mean. And you guys only have been in business a couple of years, right? Yeah, we're just... Um, yeah, we just passed uh, two years now. Oh my gosh. So, yeah. So obviously, a match I may made have in heaven. They were on to something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, Congratulations. Uh, and, and now you have the book out, which is pretty cool. Do you have any travel plans coming up? Uh, yeah, we're working on a, a little bit of a book tour. We're heading actually to Chicago uh, in the beginning of January, and uh, we're going to be uh, at, giving a, a talk at South by Southwest on the rise of the Brooklyn food scene. Uh, we're going to be on the panel and a few other cities, too. Awesome. Great. All right. Any, any other recipes that, that you'd recommend to people? I mean, this lobster saison is really good. Um, yeah, it depends what you like. Um, the one we're drinking the most now is our bourbon double. So it's a it's a light-bodied Belgian ale, you know, medium-bodied, uh, where you actually take wood chips, uh, soak them in bourbon overnight, and add them to the beer. And it gives it a really nice, smooth um, kick without being, like, overpowering. It's kind of it's a beer that you can drink more than just, you know, a sip of. That's I think we should say the, the name of the book, too. Uh, what's the name of the book? Beer making book. Yeah. <laughs> Brooklyn Brew Shop's beer making book, 52 seasonal recipes for small batches. And um, it was it was funny. The book title kept getting debated, but on the box for our kids, it says beer making kit because we just wanted it to make simple sense, sense. as yeah. you saw it. And so we decided that the book should say beer making book and um, publishers went with it. So we're excited. <laughs> yeah. And there, it definitely. There's a cool guy in um, California named Derek Petterman. 
I don't know if any of you have heard. Of it. He did Ramblings of a Beer Runner. Mm-hmm. He yeah. did an interview with you guys, and what he said was, he, he quoted Stephen. He said, "If you've ever made a pot of pasta, you're in good shape with our book." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, basically, it means you have a pot, a strainer, and you may have a funnel, and then basically, otherwise, you can make beer. And when you're dealing with one gallon batches, then that's what you know people deal in those quantities in kitchens. It's like the five what, gallon. What, what you guys are doing huge. something different, though. I mean, you're demystifying. I mean, it's one thing commercial brewing, but you know, if you're at home. You're making it sound like you know it's as easy as making some soup or tea. Yeah, we we didn't think that the first step of making beer should be go to the hardware store. We think that you have the things that you need. You just need a few ingredients, and you can make something really good and tasty. So what would I do? I, I have a pot at home, <laughs> a strainer. What what do I? Let's say I can't buy your kit, and and I'm like you know stuck in a snowstorm, and I want to make beer. You want to make beer? I got <laughs> grain though. I got some grain. As long as it's malted, you're in good shape. Um, the first step of making beer is really like making oatmeal. You just steep the grain in hot water for an hour, strain it, collect all that liquid, which is going to be your beer, and then you boil that, and that's where you get to have the most fun. You get to add your hops. You get to add your sugars if you're doing a Belgian-style beer. Um, you get to add spices and fruit and lobster shells if you're us. Um, and then it ferments for two weeks, Um, just cool it down, pitch some yeast, put it in the back of a closet or underneath the kitchen sink. And after that, you bottle it and you add just a little bit of sugar to reactivate the yeast that are still in there. And it will carbonate naturally in the bottle, which um, I still think is a little bit magic, but is science. And so, I mean, brewing has been done forever. Um, And I think that we need to remember that these were crafts that everybody did at home and you can still do it at home. And what better to share with your friends than something that tastes great and gets you a little bit tipsy. So that, yeah. How many bottles do you get from a one gallon batch? 10, 10 bottles. Yep. <laughs> so there you go. You can share it with nine friends. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I made that afternoon when I got creative. It's yeah, fantastic. That, that's why we like half pints. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the, yeah. The, the sharing. The sharing The generous of the person's yeah. <laughs> glassware of choice. Yeah, I'm always impressed with you guys. I, I think what you guys are doing is very cool. And you're, you're definitely like a, you're a step, I think, you know, to the side of everyone else, you know. You're not out-teching us, out-geeking us. And um, I always like your beer, too. <laughs> are there any opportunities to taste your beers? You, know, you, you were at Cooperstown. Uh, Belgium comes to Cooperstown this year. You're always at a lot of the beer festivals I go to. We do to. festivals, but the best uh, way to try our beer is make it yourself, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> right. Or catch us on this beer tour, because we'll definitely yeah. be sampling at a lot of the events. And what other what other towns are you going to go to? Um, we're going to be in L.A., San Francisco, Austin for South by Southwest, uh, Chicago, Philly, the, North Carolina, North Carolina the triangle. triangle, which I'm really excited about. Um and, and if you if you email us and tell us that you want us, we'll probably head your way. Yeah, we, we have just got a com- pretty compelling what's, email. What's your email? How, how, how can they reach you? Um, uh, beer info. at Brooklyn yeah. Brew Shop. All right. Beer, and just stay on. You guys are going to stay with us. We love you, Eric and, and Stephen. And what's the name of your book again? Brooklyn Brew Shop's Beer Making Book, 52 Seasonal Recipes for Small Batches. All right. Well, <laughs> Ben Wood's here, and uh, we're going to take a short break on Beer Assassin's Radio. Come back with Wendy Littlefield from... Uh, all things Belgian experts on Beer Sessions Radio. Sitting in a park in Paris, France, reading the news, and it sure looks bad. 
They won't give peace a chance. There was just a dream some of us had. Still a lot of lines to see, but I wouldn't want to stay here. It's too old and cold and settled in its ways here. All the California, California, coming home. I'm gonna see the folks I dig. I'll even kiss a sunset peak. California, I'm coming home. I met a redneck on a Grecian isle who did the goat dance very well. He gave me back my smile, but he kept my camera in a cell. Oh, the rogue, the red, red rogue. He cooked good omelets and stews, and I might have stayed on with him there, but my heart cried out for you, California. Oh, California, coming home. Oh, make me feel good, rock and roll band. I'm your biggest fan, California. I'm coming home. The streets are full of strangers. All the news on your ears just give you the blues. Just give you the blues. So I bought me a ticket. I caught a plane to Spain. To a party down a red dirt road, there were lots of pretty people there, reading Rolling Stone, reading Vogue. I said, "How long can you hang around?" I said, "A week, maybe two." Just Back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Jimmy Carboni here with uh, Jen Schwartman. We're celebrating 30 years of Van Bergen De Wolf with Wendy Littlefield. Wendy, how are you? Hello there, Jimmy. I'm very good. How are you? Well, you guys have done a great job of getting the word out. You get your Twitter guys out there, at Belgian Experts, and the, the hashtag with C2CT, baby. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have Don with a sandwich board on the street. <laughs> Jimmy, uh, Jimmy, I'm eavesdropping. You, I, I can let you speak to the to the boss if you want. Though. I can just hang <laughs> up and you can speak to the boss. Don, you know, I mean, let, let's. we know how great you guys are and all that you've done, but, you know, talking about these days... Um, you guys have a, a great lineup of beers, man. I mean, <laughs> Thank you. I'm looking at it's the great. coaster with all these beers, and I'm like... Right, right. It's like a second childhood. Yeah. <laughs> you're just coming back. And I also know you're really active with the Cicerone. Um, yeah, that was great. You that just did the Masters, uh, the big Masters Cicerone competition. Yeah, yeah. I, I had a lot of fun. I was giving the oral exam for food and beer pairing. And I have to say, the chance to talk and eat at the same time, I was in heaven. So it was great. How many people were up for Master Cicerone? Sorry? How many people, how many candidates were there for Master? Well, there were 11 this year. But there are only, you know, there are only three that have gained it. It's incredibly hard. I could never pass. I tell them every time (laughs) while I'm testing them. And uh, I I myself, you know, interviewed 11. So... um, and that's how many there were, I guess, in total. I don't know how many are going to pass, obviously. Okay. Well, let's go back 30 years ago. I mean, we kind of know how you started, but mm, how did you yeah. make it work? I mean, you, you, when you went to Belgium, people were people interested in Belgian beer 30 years ago in America? Uh, 
Uh, I will answer quickly, and Wendy will embellish. No, is the fast answer not at all? Uh, this was, this came as an utter surprise to Wendy and me because we lived in Belgium, and one of the great things that we observed. I mean, you walk off the plane, there's you know frites and mool and beer, and you don't miss it, no matter what age you are. And we were just out of college. Um, and we just thought when we were transferred back from our jobs to the city that the one thing Americans would, you know, just jump at immediately was beers because they're so, they were so noteworthy and so utterly different from what uh, Americans were drinking at that time. And of course we were utterly wrong. It took, uh, about 10 years really for, for that, for people to wake up to the flavors that we had, we had found fascinating at the get-go. Right, and when we came to New York and started to sell the beers, because Don first just asked for the rights for Duval in New York. What did he know? He was 25. Um, we would go to bars, and the um, the bartenders and sommeliers would really look down their noses at us because beer was so déclassé. They had no interest in selling beer. It was going to cut into their profit margins of selling wine. And uh, Did they try it, though? I mean, if they tried it, how could they deny it? Well, because it was such a big step from what they were drinking to what we were trying to sell them that um, right now it seems easy for people to appreciate Belgian beer, but I can assure you there are many steps in between an industrial lager and a strong golden ale, and it was not an automatic thing that people could go from A, not liking beer, and B, not recognizing what we were giving them is in the realm of what they called beer. I can tell you it's really, really ego bruising when you're giving your, your, your little demonstration, you're pouring out your duvel into a beautiful tulip glass, and the Coke sales delivery guy walks in and you get pushed aside while they put the, the Coke sixtals under the bar, you know, and, and, and the, you know, the guy you're talking to says, okay, I can't talk anymore because I've got to do my soda delivery right now. Yeah. Well, it sounds like there's, there was Robert Mondavi, you know, uh, proselytizing California wines in, in the 60s and 70s, and then you guys came out and did Belgian beer. I'd love to be compared to Robert Mondavi. <laughs> well, you are. Now you are. So, yeah. well, we we always—he's just older than you, or was older than you. But. Yeah, right. Uh, who was older? He was. Well, he I was think. older than you. So. <laughs> I yeah, think yeah, he absolutely. died. I think he's, yeah, in his he's not with us actually. Yeah, but we but we always consider ourselves really the, the our 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 friend Ben Gabart, who really gave us the rights to Duval uh, to sell. And and I don't know if you know guys know this, but originally. We were not the very first people to import Duval. There was a guy in Texas. The only thing was he was importing what was what today is called Duval, well, recently green and is now called Duval Single. It was a filtered 7.5% product. And we came to the brewery and we said, we want to import your beer. And what we were talking about was the wonderful beer that we had experienced, which is 8.5% in bottle condition and method champenoise. And he puts this bottle from Texas on the desk. And I said to him, I said, Ben, that's, that's Grandma Duval, because that's what they used to call it in Belgium, because it was sold in supermarkets for, you know, ladies who didn't want their Duvals exploding in the summer, basically. And uh, I said, no, 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 I want the real one, I want the real one. And anyway, long story short, we convinced him to let us do the real one, and within a year and a half, 18 months, the guy in Texas who had said it wasn't possible to sell beer in America with stuff or junk in the bottom, as it was referred to lovingly, 
junk in the bottom. Uh, anyway, so we got the we got the nickname Ben used to call Wendy and I his his missionaries, and that's really what we felt. We weren't proselytizing; we were actually missionaries, and we'd been sent to the you know this very the the sort the of benighted continent yeah. of America, yeah. And we were going to turn we were going to enlighten Americans about Belgian beer. So I, I guess he was right. Yeah, and I also want to add that at the same time, even earlier than us, um, Charlie Finkel and Roseanne from Merchant Duvin right. were proselytizing for great beer. When they did took they start? How, how many years? I think okay. 78 is when yeah. Charlie started. So a few years. Put together before. his portfolio. Yeah. Well, four, really. Right. And, uh, but there was a different approach. He tried to get a wonderful beer from every great brewing nation and mm-hmm. build his portfolio that way. And he was pushing the edge and saying, you have to consider these beers like wine and price them accordingly. And then we, our, our strategy was to go and explain Belgian beer, Belgian only, and we wanted to have the best example of every indigenous style of beer from Belgium and present those. So, um, so we were working side by side for many years. And when you be- went back to the first question you asked, Jimmy, of how long it took before it was successful, and Don said, you know, basically 10 years, for seven years, um, this was a part-time venture. We held down our regular jobs in New York and did the beer on the side. And then only at that point, at around 1990, did it look like there was enough glimmer of hope and enough distributors who were willing to carry the products and actually pay their bills mm-hmm. that we could leave our um, primary jobs and start um, doing the import business. And we left New York City and with our two little children, and moved to a little house in Cooperstown. So that's how we, we got the thing going for, for real. Way back then, what were a couple of the accounts that were buying your beers? Uh, can I, I have to t- I introduce and then Don can elaborate. Well, the first place I went, I have hey, to Hey, you interrupted. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I thought you said We've me only been you. married 33 years. <laughs> I just wanted to introduce. I, 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 want, I want to introduce my wife, Wendy, and she'll know <laughs> Now, the first thing I want to say is that... The, um, that Don uh, raised the venture capital to expand Dean and DeLuca. Dean and DeLuca was a little store in Soho on Prince Street, and he presented the first account that carried uh, the beer was uh, Dean and DeLuca. And he got to talking to Giorgio, and Giorgio was lamenting the fact that he lost his lease. And uh, Don said that could be a blessing in disguise because your store could be much bigger if you had better space. So he found the location on Broadway and moved the store over there. So, uh, and then he went on to be, what was your official title there, Don? I was executive vice president. Yeah, of Dean and DeLuca. So that was, the, that was the first account in America that carried the beer. Right. But, that, but that's, not as, that's not as good a story, Jimmy, as me chasing uh, uh, Murray around up at... Um, Zaybar? Zaybar. <laughs> and Murray... Murray um, who's Murray Klein, who used to run Zabar, he's not with us anymore. And, uh, of course, you had three stores you had to be in in New York. If you were in the retail, you had to be in Dean & Luca, and you had to be in Zabar's, and you had to be in, what is our other one on downtown? Fairway? No, well. Maybe oh, Cinderella's it, back then, or Balducci's? No, no, it was Balducci's. I'm sorry, Balducci's. So, um, but anyway, so Murray Klein was this fierce New York retailer. And I spent a half hour on a Saturday speaking to his back <laughs> while I chased him all around Zabar's <laughs> trying to convince him to take Duval. And finally I stopped and I said, Murray, if you don't look at the beer, you'll never know what you're taking. <laughs> he and he finally, turned around? <laughs> he finally turned around. He said, I'll take one case. 
Oh, and actually, and I, that wanna, was the story. I wanna also add that we kind of stupidly started in New York because New York has these ridiculous laws that beer and wine can't be sold together. Right. So it was like tying one arm behind our backs to try to sell it in New York because there were not that many specialty food stores. And the grocery stores at the time were completely antediluvian. So, they didn't understand it at all. So your whole focus back then was the retail market. What about bars? Were there any bars well, who took the beer right off the bat? Oh, absolutely. Well, again, it was sort of hot spots in Soho that began to discover the beers. So, yeah, we had the high spot bars and restaurants like uh, Danny Meyer's group were some of the first people yeah. to get, get, get the religion and... Um, Union Square Cafe for a long time sold another beer that doesn't even exist mm-hmm. anymore in Belgium, which was Blanche de Bruges. Um, mm-hmm. And we worked a lot training their staff on understanding Belgian beer. So, but, yeah, and, it was and also, very important. But you also can't forget that how important those, those great retailers were to really changing people's attitude towards food. I mean, you know, back then, balsamic vinegar was still fairly new, and they were introducing things like that. So it was natural to go to them to think that that would be where you'd want to start to persuade people that this that beer it was well, a food in itself that could be appreciated. And not to downplay that, but people have a chance to try it if they, if it's in a bar or in a restaurant, and yeah, then maybe then if they love it, then they'll go to yeah. that retailer and find it. So that yeah. there seems to be well, a, there's always a partnership. Oh, Absolutely. for sure. Yeah. But but there was no there was no Belgian beer on tap, and so the right. you know that's only that was actually Tom Peters at Monks. Who, oh. who, who chased us for ages to get us to bring quack in on tap. He uh-huh. was obsessed with that beer. So that was the first Belgian strong beer that he came on tap. He just liked the so. glass. <laughs> so, Wendy, listen, yeah. give, would you give us a little more perspective? Um, so yeah. you'd had Dean DeLuca. You had some places in New York. So you had Tom Peters. Give me a couple other places around the country that, that were some of the pioneers. Well, uh, Coronado in San Francisco, Absolutely. Um, yeah. And then, and in DC, what was that great place that doesn't exist? The Brick Scaler was very important. Yeah. At yeah. That, do you remember the Brick Scaler? Oh yeah, I remember. Yeah, yeah. They had a thousand. The, the knock on the Brick Scaler was they had you know so many beers and your you know it was a total lottery whether or not you'd be getting a fresh one. But they had <laughs> great beer at least. You know. Yeah. It was yeah. on display. It was totally on display, <laughs> and you know, and then don't forget, God. I mean, I know that you're you're sort. Of, I'm going to sound like we're ancient, but so like we couldn't sell, for example, back then in Atlanta, it wasn't open. The Carolinas were not open. Chicago, which has turned out to be a great market in the past five years, at that point was a purely ethnic market. Most beers were directly imported from both Poland and Germany into Chicago, so the cost of beer was so low. Uh, any other import basically couldn't compete with it, and there was no ethnic group to sell it to. Were those so we closed had, markets because of alcohol content? Yeah. No, well, the yeah, South, yeah, the yes, South. but not Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. Chicago no, not just, Chicago, you know, but the that's South. Yeah. That was because yeah. they wouldn't couldn't. let you have a higher alcohol. Absolutely. Yeah. We, that's, you know, we needed all those pop-the-cork pop movements. They were very important in the late 90s. Yeah, I mean, there was a time. The biggest change for me, because I took five years off from the business after we sold Omegang to work in the nonprofit world. And the biggest difference from when we sold Omegang and when I came back into the business was the explosion of beer culture in the South. They have, because as laws changed, um, there was a huge pent-up demand. And the bars and publicans and stores in the South have essentially accomplished in five years what it took the rest of the country 30 years to do. 
So for me, when I go on business trips, I, the most exciting place for me to go is like um, Alabama or Arkansas because it's just It didn't even phenomenal. exist before. Oh, and they're, mm. so, they're doing such a great job. You know, guys, when we started like those, those uh, pictures from outer space when, you know, they, they have a movement, they say, don't turn on the lights, and like all of Australia then turns on the lights. <laughs> you know, for us, it was like that. It was like, it was a completely dark continent, and then we started in New York, and we're very focused because we, we were really trying to saturate the good, whatever good food people we could reach, whether they would be retail, bar, or restaurant. Then we then our next place was Philly, and everybody knows that Philly is a remarkable Belgian beer place. Almost there are lots of reasons for it that people now understand, but back then it was remarkable. And that's in a place, by the way, where you you, you know you can only sell six bottles at a time at a retail. They can't buy a single bottle. There are all sorts of strange laws. The next place that sort of opened up, ironically, was in Boston because Boston had a law, or Massachusetts had a law, where you didn't have to have trucks. You could use a third party like UPS to deliver your stuff. So a lot of small, small distributors started up. And in that way, Shimei became very, very popular in Massachusetts. And once Shimei became popular, we could come in behind them. So you just huh. see these lights sort of turning on one by one. And then the laws started to change. And then the East Coast opened, and we could sell in Atlanta. And then after that, in Carolina. And now, of course, the, the whole country is blazing. But it really except was light for, by light. Except for Mississippi. <laughs> oh, really? They're the pray one straggler? For, pray for Mississippi. Is that the only state that you really see a huge hindrance still? Well, I may be leaving out one or two, but uh, Mississippi has been in the news. And, and, you know, there are a lot of citizen action groups, usually started by home brewers, pushing to get the laws changed and saying, hey, you know, it's good for business, it's good for taxes. So I hope that this coming year the laws will change even in Mississippi. Wow, this this is a really cool conversation. Um, we're we're going to take a short break, and, and will you guys stay on? And we'll come back, and we'll have uh, Lou Bryson as well, okay? On Beer Terrific. Sessions Radio. Right back okay. in a minute. Thank you. We do? I am a child. I last a while. You can't conceive of the pleasure in my smile You hold my hand, rough up my hair It's lots of fun to have you there I gave to you, now you give to me I'd like to know what you learned the sky is blue and so is the sea. What is the color when black is burning? What is the color? You are a man, you understand. You pick me up and you lay me down again. You make the rules. You say what's fair It's lots of fun to have you there I gave to you, now you give to me I'd like to know what you've learned The sky is blue and so is the sea What is the color when black is burning the color 
Hello, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio. We're here with Wendy and Don from Van Bergen to Wolf. Hey, uh, Wendy and Don, guess what? Um, our guests, Stephen and Erica from uh, Brooklyn Brew Shop, gave us a card. There's a Mississippi brew blog. It's MS. Oh, yeah, I know. You know, know. msbrew.com, Craig Hendry, beer blogger, Craig at msbrew.com. He's guess, my best friend. Help Mississippi lift the ban on gourmet beer. Support, yep, yep. raise your pints. So wait, uh, yep. again, help just, Mississippi just, lift the ban on gourmet beer. Support, have, raise your pints. Raiseyourpints.com. I yeah. spoke to him this week, and he gave me his hot tips on the best distributors to go with. And what did he say? Well, I can't tell you. It's <laughs> <laughs> not, not hot anymore. Hey, let's have some fun with you. We, we've all been uh, playing with our our coast-to-coast coast, uh, toast coasters, which are pretty awesome. On the back, it lists all the beers. That what? Van Bergen de Wolf distributes right now. And I checked off ones I've tried that I really like. Whitcap. Whitcap is always so hard to get. Um, how did you get that beer? Tell us a quick story about, about that brewery, because that's a pretty neat little Belgian brewery. Well, um, you know, it, it was a beer that I was very keen on because I had been tasting um, Trappist beers. And there was this funny beer which had a label that had a monk on it. And if you know the whole law about Trappists, you're not supposed to be able to have any representation of a monk. So I did a little research, and it turned out that the guy who did the recipe for Whitcap Single, which in Belgium is called Stimulo, and which now, Jimmy, is called Stimulo here because we just relaunched it under that, uh, its original name. But back then, we couldn't when we first brought it in because nobody would approve the word Stimulo to <laughs> close to Stimulate. Uh, but so I, I was asking around, and, and I finally got to the brewery, and uh, th- uh, there was a great guy whose name was Luke Slagmulder, and I said, Luke, I love your single. What is the story with this? And he explained that actually the guy who founded the brewery, founded the recipe, had brewed for each of the different Trappist monasteries, and that is why he got to use a monk on the label. Uh, a quick aside, do you guys know St. Saint Bernardus? Saint yes. Sure. Yes. What is on the bottle when you look at that bottle? It looks like a monk, right? Right. It's not. <laughs> he's a, he, Who is if he? You look, if you look very closely, he's wearing a little uh, metal sort of medallion, and that indicates he's not a monk, but he's actually a scholar. He's a member of the academy. And that's the big difference, because we actually got to look like a monk. And uh, the story to finish was that uh, they, the, the Trappist gave the man who founded uh, the brewery the right to use that symbol um, and to use the term so, Trappistan beer. He actually could call his beer Trappistan beer until he died. After he died, they took off the, the moniker Trappistan, but they could still keep the visual. So he came in from the outside. He was not part of, part no, of the religion? Fa- Yes, was he right. a monk? He was a lay brewer. Oh, yeah, he okay. advised right, all right. the monasteries. Who was advising yeah. them. And, wow. wow. And, that's, and that's still the case. There are still, they're still professional um, brew, brew scientists who work with the monasteries whenever need be. So hmm. that's not unusual. But it was Don's, um, it, it was a, a beer that Don loved. Because the Abbey Single is what the monks drink for lunch. It's lighter. And this had a very delicate and lemony um, I, I love that beer too. And let's jump yeah. in forward now. This is what, 2010, 11. Uh, one of your newer beers, you've got Lambics. We're, we're drinking that right now. It. It's really good. Tell us Thank about that. Delicious. Uh, well, you're, you're asking, these are, these are great stories, but they're not stories I can do in one second, but I'll do my best. 
Um, you know, we love Lambic. Lambic, spontaneously fermented beer. The great thing for me, the, the thing that just fires my imagination about Lambic is it is a truly limited product because it's a truly seasonal product. So every season that you brew, there are different wild yeasts that are in the air that are going to fall on the beer that are going to make each season's beer different. It, on top of that, the beer is actually uh, fermented in barrels. So that means that each barrel is like a microclimate, like wineries always claim that microclimates, and they do. In the beer-making process for, for spontaneously fermented beer, each keg will develop differently and have a different flavor. So my passion has always been to try and convince Lambic producers that they need to highlight this, that they need to give people the chance to taste this variation and not to sort of smudge it over. Goods, which is a very lovely product, is actually like champagne is to wine. I don't know if you know about champagne, but champagne is blended, and it really is not until very recently for marketing purposes. You never had a year on your champagne because the, the producer of champagne would always blend it to have a consistency. Right. And, in, and goods is like that for Lambic. It's a consistent product that gives house character, but it, it, it masks that seasonality. It masks that difference by keg. And what Lambic's is, is I went, and after two years of trying, finally convinced two producers to sell me their base lambic, which is un-re-fermented, un so it's not, spar it's not highly carbonated. It's as flat as it can be out of the barrel. And I convinced them to let me taste their casks and to choose the ones I wanted to make my own proprietary lambic blend. And then we bottled it, and we bottled it with as little secondary fermentation as possible so that the product comes out like sort of like a frizzante. It's got about 2 grams of CO2 instead of the standard 7 grams of CO2. So I hope I said that but both question. intelligibly and quickly. Okay, question. But you blend it, so doesn't it come close to goose because you're blending? <laughs> Tell me the difference well, between the blending of goose and the blending of lambic. Question. Because what we're not doing is we're not priming it with enough sugar to make it highly carbonated. Got it. And so, so we're trying to keep the we're trying to keep the carbonation at a, a very low. You need carbonation for the preservation in the bottle. Ideally, you would love it to be 100 percent flat, but that's almost impossible to bottle a product. Uh, a lambic like that and have it be sturdy enough to actually hey, ship. Hey, Don, when, um, do we have another caller on right now? Do we have uh, Lou Bryson, who's a big fan of, of yours Yay. and a friend I'm of here. yours, right? <clears throat> yeah, oh, I love Lou. Lou, are you on? Tweeting about I Lou am. I'm here. Please. I'm here. Do you hear me? Wow. And Wendy and Don? Yeah. yeah. This is amazing. Three people on a call. <laughs> Hello, Lou. Uh, I hope you raised a lot of money today. <laughs> so, Lou, wait. Lou tell us what he did. What did he do? Starter. To get his own TV show, and I'm going to oh, you, yeah. every two hours until he gets a million dollars. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, do you guys go way back, right? Tell us, come on, talk about this Wendy, Dawn, Lou Bryson thing. You, you know, know, I don't think I actually <laughs> met these guys until the the early mid '90s, maybe when I started writing about beer. But I I actually had my first duel. I was sitting here today trying to think about it. I think it was back in God, like early '84. Yeah. 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 Where were I, you, I, I remember that. I, I remember I sold that one in Philadelphia that month. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually in, in, uh, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, at an old German place. The guy had, um, that's where I started drinking non-mainstream beers, a place called the Hotel La Zeus. The guy had 125 different beers back then, which was pretty good. Amazing. Amazing. Wow. Yeah. And we, we were working our way through the cooler, and we saw this funny-looking little squat little bottle with shoulders on it. And uh, I still remember we all saw it down in the corner, pour slowly, and we just laughed and dumped it in the glass. And after we got a rag and cleaned up all the foam, we, uh, we decided that stuff was pretty good. Tasted what was left, and it was good. Yes. 
And then Lou came to visit us in Cooperstown, and Don and Lou both liked to rant, so they became instant friends. <laughs> it was, it was a day that changed my life. Uh, Don uh, packed me in the car and drove me up. My, my wife and uh, kids were up in Cooperstown at the museum. They had dropped me off. And after a, a really long, fascinating interview in which we rambled all over the hills, uh, he throws me in the car, and we drive up to Cooperstown, and he starts talking about chain restaurants and monoculture, and changed my life. It was just and <laughs> so completely. This is kind of like a around. roast. This is this is kind of a birthday, a 30th anniversary, and Lou Bryson comes on and tells us weird stories. All right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay. Well, we this is your life. At some point. <laughs> yeah, I'm waiting for my second grade teacher to come <laughs> exactly. on. <and> then. <laughs> Mrs. Robinson, would you come out now? <laughs> he was drinking back then. I had to stop him. <laughs> so with, without Duval, there's no Lou Bryson? Well, you know, that may be true. That may be true. What were you doing back then? Were you writing, but just not about beer? No, I was, I was actually, um, well, at that time, I was still in grad school. Uh, back in '84, uh, um, and then I was a librarian. And after a while, that all just kind of fell apart because the companies I was working for kept failing. But there's no way you can blame that on the librarian. <laughs> and uh, never blame the librarian. No, no, no one ever does. It's you know, it's better than being a butler. Um, we, um, the last place I worked, uh, fell apart about three weeks after I sold my first piece on beer, and um, I just kind of picked up from there. Lou, if, if I know you've written some things about Wendy and Don. Uh, yeah. if, if you're going to write something for the 30th anniversary, uh, what three points would, would you say uh, about them and the work they've done? Uh, well, the, first and foremost, and, and maybe even the, the only point I would want to make over and over and over again is the, the truly seminal nature of what they've done. Because, I mean, it's not just that they brought these beers in, I mean, which would be enough. I mean, they're, they're fantastic beers. But these beers influenced so many people, drinking them, inspiring them, making them want Rescuing to make beers them. like it. I'm sorry? Yeah. Rescuing them from yeah. obscurity, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, people, people went to Belgium because they, they tasted these beers, and they, they heard Don and Wendy talk about how the beers fit into the whole culture and the food and everything, and they wanted to go see it, and they did. And, you know, they came back and, and changed beer here. Um, I mean, uh, Rob Todd went to went and and started making Belgian beers because he thought they were so amazing. You know, he's he's doing allegation. He's got this whole thing going. He's doing all kinds of things with spontaneous fermentation, and he's just he's inspired by it. Um, Tom Peters here in Philadelphia, uh, mad about Belgian beers, and has has changed how this city looks at things. And it's all it's all coming. To, and and I'm I'm sure you guys I'm, I've talked to you about this. You wouldn't you wouldn't slight any. I mean them and uh, Merchant Devan. I mean Absolutely. those two companies. Isn't that what I said? Absolutely. Without right. them, this didn't happen. Yeah. I, I remain. I mean Michael Jackson. All all you know credit proper credit. But I mean without these two companies, we don't find out about so much stuff. That that's. You know, that's the one thing I would want. Like I said, I'd, I'd make that point three times, I guess. Well, you know, that's, that's yeah. great, and, and that's why we're here today across the country at Belgian Experts and uh, hashtag C2CT. Uh, we have a, a, a great guest here, Stephen and Erica, who just came out with a little book, a beer-making book. You guys have a question for Wendy and Don? Because they'll be out in Chicago, and they want to meet you again. 
Definitely. Um, what we're so excited, we love the years that you actually started your business because it's kind of the same that we've started ours. Um, Stephen was born in 1984, so it's... 85. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> that makes me even older than him. But, uh, but as you've been talking, I, I, I've basically been taking notes because I feel like what we're doing is pretty similar to what you were doing in, in that you were just you know spreading beer and appreciation for beer and we're just trying to get people to realize they can make it themselves and we're just you know writing down the stores and saying yep okay yeah we're, we're, we're actually going to be there next next week uh, like Zabar oh, right. like you're that. coming to Chicago <laughs> oh yeah we're, we're going to be in Chicago um, mid-January we're going to do a big class at brew camp and at the Lincoln Park Whole Foods um, which is really exciting I'm oh yeah so you'll have to you'll have to look us up and you also have given me the perfect entree because I wanted to say that, you know, the Coast to Coast Toast that we put together was an event that's about six months in the planning. And what we realized we wanted to try to do for the party was to link two generations of, of um, beer innovators. On the one hand, we wanted to celebrate the people like Toronado and Monks and ourselves and Merchant Devin, all the people who uh, invested money and heart and time in, in building the market, um, selling the beer, brewing the beer, explaining the beer, uh, but also celebrate the second generation of beer enthusiasts who are um, well, Wendy, double, you know what? doubling and you did. up and spreading And guess out. what? With Twitter, yeah. you got a great Twitter thing. We're going to have to wrap up, but here's I just want to say hi to uh, one of the new generation. Anna likes beer. <laughs> and say hello. Hi, Don and Wendy. Yeah, hi. one of the certified Cicerones. You guys are part of that. You guys have done something really special. And you know what? We're due back. We're going to be on again. Lou and uh, Wendy and Don, we're going to do a show just with you guys this winter, okay? Because oh, I, I want to talk this early. through. We've got a lot to talk about. But Congratulations, we're, we're gonna, too. Happy 30th. We're going to have to uh, close and have out. And have a great party at Jimmy's. We love you for doing it. Thanks. Cheers. Cheers. Well, hang on. Have, thanks to our sponsors, greatbrewers.com, have helped to bring this podcast to you tonight. Beer Sessions Radio is supported by the Good Beer Seal, goodbeerseal.com. Thanks to Jen, Erica, Stephen, Ben, Michael, Wendy, and Lou for joining me here on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks to our producers, Jack Inslee and Rio Connor. We'll see you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. Woo! This little song is more to the point. Roll out the barrel and lend me your ears. I like beer. It makes me a jolly good fellow, I like beer. It helps me unwind, and sometimes it makes me feel mellow.